Intersection is brought to you by Social Health Institute, exploring new and innovative ways for hospitals and healthcare organizations to develop and enhance their social media and digital marketing strategies. Learn more at socialhealthinstitute.com. The word that I would use now, instead of thinking about it as a protective thing, now that I know more, um, is more of a responsibility. Welcome to Intersection. I'm Bobby Rutu, storyteller. I'm Becky Callahan. I'm the executive director of Safe Harbor, and I lead an organization that provides prevention, intervention, and advocacy services for victims of domestic violence and their children in the upstate of South Carolina. Safe Harbor's mission is to provide a continuum of services for victims of domestic violence and their children as well as to eliminate the cultural acceptance of domestic violence through prevention, education, and a coordinated community response. I met Becky early 2011 as Safe Harbor began embarking on a new journey to tell their story and the many stories of domestic violence survivors. In that same year of 2011, South Carolina had the highest rate of women murdered by men in the U.S., more than double the national average. In 2012, it had the second highest rate of women murdered by men. 71% of women killed by men in South Carolina were killed with a gun. On a single day in 2014, South Carolina domestic violence programs served 390 victims, and domestic violence hotlines received approximately 21,000 calls, an average of close to 15 calls every minute. It was time to tell Safe Harbor's story. Not only survivor stories, but also stories showcasing how Safe Harbor is truly impacting their community. There were interesting intersections emerging time and time again. What are the ethics associated with leveraging stories of domestic violence survivors as a means to fundraise, specifically in order to expand services in the upstate of South Carolina? A conversation we continually examined and discussed during our time working together. A conversation that encouraged us to continue capturing and telling more and more stories. So, Becky, I've been thinking about how you and I started working together. Well, your team, this team at uh, Safe Harbor. And we have been doing this for a long time. Mm -hmm. What, about 10 years? Yeah. Isn't that kind of crazy? I think when we first met, um, your wife was pregnant for the first time. So, yeah, it's... um, it's been it's been a while. Well, probably way before that. Could be. Yeah. So a little background. So basically, uh, for many years, I have been working with Safe Harbor to help them tell their story um, through video and um, and many other digital mediums. And Safe Harbor uh, is located here in the Upstate of South Carolina. Tell us a little bit about what you do in the Upstate. It's um, and very very basic things that you help people with. Yeah. Um, We have an emergency shelter for um, victims of domestic violence and their children. We have three of them um, all together. 
Um, and in each location, we have 34 in Green, 34 beds in Greenville, 20 beds in Anderson, and 16 beds in Oconee. Um, it's your basic, if somebody has to leave their home in the middle of the night due to domestic violence, they come into our shelter. We provide services for them, advocacy, sh- uh, safety planning, everything that they would need for probably a couple of months and help them um, move beyond the abuse. Um, we also have counseling for victims of domestic violence who just um, are anywhere from, I think I might need to talk to somebody about my relationship all the way to um, I need to leave and I need to develop a plan to do that to I've left and um, now I'm trying to figure out how to move forward with my life um, and I'm having a difficult time. Um, we have transitional housing for folks who have, um, left the abuse and we assist them with a little bit more safety net moving beyond and to, to help them get their footing, um, in, in the world of, uh, independent living and finding resources for jobs and daycare and whatever comes with that since they're on their own, um, for the first time. And then on the other ends of our intervention services, um, we have a pretty um, significant prevention program um, where we have educators go into our middle schools and in our high schools and help youth understand how to have healthy relationships um, and um, teach them those basic hard skills of what healthy relationships look like and and how to how to navigate that and and tips and those kind of things but also some of those soft skills of um the dance of 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 what a healthy relationship looks like what is our responsibility in the relationship what is the other person's responsibility what does respect look like um and and these youth are able to work together and kind of grapple with some of these issues that they may not have ever had conversations with which is is interesting too because you have these kids who are growing up where they have really great role models um and and parents who have respect for each other um, and then you have kids who are coming from situations where um, they've had very chaotic lives and they have horrible um, models for respect. And and they can have these conversations together. Um, and they're having these conversations. It's just that there's not necessarily, not necessarily a facilitator to help kind of guide it to where it's a healthy um, end. Um, some of the conversations that they're having, we know now, um, and, and the, the ideals and, um, some of the, um, the things that, that, um, youth are encouraging each other and, and, and using models of social media and role models, um, that are, are really bending toward, um, disrespect. Um, and so some of these kids who have great role models are starting to look at, wait, well, you know what? Um, this is kind of how it is now. This is how we act now. Um, and maybe what my parents were doing and how they've been telling me is not necessarily true. And this is kind of how, so to really have another voice in the room to kind of ha- help them grapple with that and, and identify really what a respectful relationship looks like is our effort um, to start moving the needle in South Carolina, in our little corner of South Carolina, toward um, less domestic violence in the future and more respect in the future. And then on the other end of our um, 
prevention, intervention is our advocacy and outreach in our communities, really trying to strategically look at where influencers are in our communities, um, such as our faith communities, um, our systems who work with with people who are in um situations where domestic violence might occur, um, which Department of Social Services, law enforcement, our judicial system, um, other helping agencies, and understanding that they come into contact with um, families. And how can we really um, work together to understand the prevalence of domestic violence altogether and have a common definition of it? And what are we going to do together to create a, um, a, a culture, which is our, our mission sta- statement, to create a culture where all people feel safe and respected in their relationships. And I think all of our systems or, you know, those people who come into contact or our community at large can agree that we would all like to have this. And it's our responsibility together to do that. But how are we going to do that? Um, so this is these are the things that we're doing at Safe Harbor. Which is an interesting conversation because I think – I want to dive back real quick because the mission five or six years ago was the same, but you've done so much in that amount of time to look at it so differently. Um, Because you think about the early times when we started to work together, it was educating just people about domestic violence. This is what it is. And now it's, it's a bigger piece of the pie uh-huh. And it's kind of come at the same time of this big national conversation. How important has outreach been to telling the safe harbor story to the community at large in order to really move the needle? You know, I think with any kind of social ill, if you will, you can talk about statistics all day long and talk about uh, facts all day long. But the outreach that has done the most, had most impact have, have been individual stories about people who have experienced it and, and, and understand that it's not a them, you know, which in domestic violence is really, really tricky. Um, Why is it tricky? Because it's just such a hard thing to talk about and address and look at and recognize it could be. Uh, in your family, it could be your boss, your the person sitting next to you in the Sunday school class, or your child's teacher, and and how are you gonna how are you gonna address that? That is that's tricky. So to understand that it really does have a face, and that it truly does affect every single one of those people, and um, and it's just icky. Um, it's just, uh, we had somebody who was interested in potentially helping us raise some money. And she said, you know what? The two hardest things organizations to raise money for are um, issues related to mental health and issues related to domestic violence. It's just tough. So let's think about that for a second. When we first started working together, And we started thinking about what stories are we going to tell. We had lots of discussions about the what story are we going to tell. Mm -hmm. And so I'd like to go back to some early times and Mm -hmm. thinking through, where did we start? Was it just defining what it is and putting a face to it? And 
how did we begin that in your mind? I know how we did. Right. But what? Yeah. I, I kind of remember some of that. Yeah. I, I remember where we were when we were first having these conversations. We were at Coffee Underground, and um, and you were asking some really hard questions and a lot of hard follow-up questions. And I, I just started, my hands started sweating a little bit because you were getting into some of the what questions? Do you remember? Um, I don't remember, but, but I just remember they weren't the normal, you know, what does a, a survivor of domestic violence look like? What You were getting into, you were going in between uh, the the facts, trying to get to the um, the individual, you know, feelings. And, and so I, I remember feeling at this point the confidentiality and the protection of victims of domestic violence that I had worked with for, at that point, maybe 10 years. Yeah, 10 years um, was so prevalent in my mind that I did not want to, I didn't want to disrespect anybody's story or, um, or pimp them out for a, a, to, to leverage a, an issue about domestic violence on the heels or on the back of an individual's personal, horrible situation where they their lives have been splayed open and make it worse on them. Does that make sense? And I think we started seeing some of that in the very early stages with many of the victims because they were so willing yeah. to talk about it. Yeah. But they, but we were so worried about the ramifications of sharing those inner details. Exactly. Let's right. talk about those ramifications, um, and let's talk about it in two different lenses. One is we live in South Carolina, the upstate of South Carolina, where there is a lots of different populations, lots of different uh, socioeconomic backgrounds. And there's also a massive stigma associated to domestic violence. It doesn't happen to me. I'm a white person that goes to church and does good things, and we just don't talk about that publicly. Mm -hmm. Do you think that was one of the factors we had to work through is to figure out who are the people we're going to ask and how do we not enable the stigma in the community by just displaying any domestic violence story? Right. So, you know, because – and I guess that was that's a struggle too because domestic violence is so complex and to use somebody's story um, and have them be the poster child for a very, very – complex and demeaning, horrible situation in their life is tough, (laughs) is really, really tough. And to try to figure out, all right, you know, having that person tell their story and then understanding that, all right, who's going to, whoever's going to be listening to that, what are they going to take from that and understand, oh, this is what domestic violence looks like. We are using a story to educate. And so I felt a response. We, as Safe Harbor, felt a responsibility to say, all right, now that there's this story, you know, are we responsible for what the listener is going to be taking from that and then creating more stigma? First of all, honestly, 
the the most important thing that we are concerned about is the safety of the individual telling the story. Um, Why be- so? Because um, because the domestic violence is just such a dangerous thing. If somebody is telling their story and and if they're in a situation where their abuser um, knows that they are um, talking about them. Um, and it, that can make it more dangerous for them or their children. Uh, and that's one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why folks just rarely talk about it to begin with. It's like, you know, I can't even, um, even I, I can't even tell my story because this person's still in the community and, you know, I just need to quietly just move on with my life. Uh, you know, at that point, I guess, felt like we were protecting them. Right. But, yeah. Well, and let's even back it up a little bit too, is that – if I understand correctly, and I've gotten to know Safe Harbor and domestic violence correctly, it's hard to get people to women to leave. To say, I admit that something's going on in my house, and now I'm going to leave. I'm going to get out of this situation. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole process that they have gone through to get to the point to actually leave mm-hmm. the bad situation. And then they come into Safe Harbor Services. They spend time at the shelter. They get their lives in a place where they can feel comfortable to find a new safe environment. And then they've gone through this process and like, oh, by the way, can you tell your story? Right. I mean, that process just to leave is probably taken maybe five or six or 15 or 20 years just to get out of there. Yeah. And then we want to leverage it. Yeah, exactly. That's a huge conversation right. to have. Well, and 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 so if you're thinking about other situations where you have people telling their stories to to leverage a a cause, for instance, the issue of domestic violence is just so personal. It happens with the person you love the most and 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 it happens and it's you know from the stories that I have been honored to to even know when I've been working with survivors it's I mean these are the, the most demeaning horrid vile like I said they're they're every bit of their vulnerabilities were splayed open and annihilated by somebody who they love the most and who wants to relive that. Right. Well, let's go back to the first thing we ever created, which was the Safe Harbor story. Yeah. And it was created for fundraising. Yeah. It, I mean, yeah. that, its sole exactly. purpose was to go yeah. out and to have people at community events, yeah. tell them the story, and then make an ask right. and some engagement. Yeah. And so... A couple things kind of came out of that. Number one is we had a lot of discussion. Do we feel comfortable asking certain people to tell their stories so yeah. we can go fundraise? Yeah. Yeah. That was that was hard. Yeah. And we had a lot of debate over it. Yeah. We we felt more comfortable in this place where if we did just basic, you know, fundraising and outreach are two different things. And so an outreach story is where you go and you may have somebody's story and you talk about an issue and you just put it out there. And that's kind of what we were doing prior to you coming on board in a limited way. And we were, we were, we felt like (laughs) 
that was as much as we could do because the more outreach, and still true, the more outreach you're doing in the community, people are aware of your organization, they're aware of your cause. And if they intrinsically feel like that they want to give to an organization, then they're going to help support your organization. And and we had already reaped some benefits of that. And that felt more comfortable to us rather than using somebody's story. Like I said, it felt like pimping somebody out in order to get money for an organization to have money for additional services. So it felt real. It, it felt awkward. It was very awkward. It was and, awkward at first. And I think we we had a lot of really interesting debates about who we should pick to tell their story. Mm-hmm. The one thing that I have to admit that I've never told you this is I actually wondered if I was the right person to do this. Really? Mainly because why is a male... Yeah. Telling the story of a domestic violence victim. Yeah. In an arena that can a male truly tell that story? And that, I rappled with that a lot. Mm-hmm. And I was, I even worried in a, in some of those early discussions that I pushed too far because I'm a male. Yeah. You know, and it was, it was a tough balance to walk away from. I remember leaving those discussions doing a lot of really um, some soul searching, making sure I was the right person. Yeah. Now a quick break to give a quick shout out to the network that supports Intersection, Touchpoint Media, a collection of podcasts dedicated to discussions on all things healthcare, including digital marketing and online patient engagement strategies, CIO and technology strategies, the challenges of the online physician, the power of the e-patient, and most importantly, the power of storytelling. To learn more, go to touchpoint.health. That is touchpoint.health. Let's rejoin the show. What was some of the first feedback that you got once we started showing some of those first stories? From? From the community at large. You know, obviously the individuals that were in the story, but... You know, from the people that were potential donors, uh, outreach in general, what was some of the feedback that you got when you started pushing that stuff? Well, um, it was overwhelmingly positive from everybody. Overwhelmingly positive. Um, And and so the the people that we asked and, and were willing to tell their story felt very empowered, they said, by by sharing their story um, and and being able to tell the story of this was then and this is now um, felt very um, empowering is the only word I guess I can come up with. And they felt like... It was kind of therapy for them. It was. It was. I mean, they'd already... Most of them had already gone through the therapy with us is... Um, but it was very, it was very <laughs> therapeutic to be able to sit down and talk about it um, and say, "Wow, there was this, and this is what here's where things are now." I, I, yeah, this is great, and I think that the whole idea of perhaps maybe my story might help somebody else. 
um, was was also a a, a very a positive experience for and it was really survivors. brave of them if you think about it so let's oh, gosh. Let's, let's paint the picture real quick oh, yeah you know this isn't walking in and just talking this is we've agreed to sit down and have us tell yeah. your story we're gonna bring a big camera a bunch of lights we're gonna hang a microphone over top of you and we're gonna shine all this stuff we're gonna ask very tough questions and oh, by the way, we want you to be completely transparent mm-hmm. and be emotional mm-hmm. with all this production stuff around mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. And then it was the moment that it was almost like they 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 just turned on and w- didn't have to ask questions. It was one question, yeah. and boom! It was it was just like where do we yeah. where do we shut them off? Yeah, that um that that's why I can continue to do this work every day, honestly, um, is because of the, I mean, that's that the the bravery and the strength of being able to know that you've gone, I mean, I just can't imagine, you know, you said that they were, they were going through this every single day and describing this and the, and, and the whole idea of, you know, this was your life. Um, and, and these terrible, just Things that have, that can cause you to—it's crazy making, you know—to to cause you to really question everything that you know about the world, um, and make you feel so horrible. And that the fact that um, the resilience part of it—and uh, I'm gonna, you know, I'll, I'm not gonna just put it behind me and and go on about my life. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell, I'm gonna tell strangers about this. And, you know, it, it, what's interesting, too, and again, that's where I, I recognize um, it's it's not my responsibility to be protective, um, that most of them w- would say either subtly or, or, or after the fact or even in the time of their um, interview process, you if this is a fundraising thing, actually, that was the thing. It's like, okay, we're, we're okay to do it for, for outreach, but we don't want our survivors to ask for money. And, and we had one survivor who said, I need you to invest in services like Safe Harbor because of my story and because of the fact that there are other people who are experiencing this and you need to know my story so you can understand that services like Safe Harbor need the resources to help those people who are not coming forward quite yet, who will be the the next person who is that child in the shelter, I think is what she said. What is your reaction to the Me Too campaign, and how did it align with y'all's efforts to do the outreach, and mm-hmm. and how did it help you in any way rethink or reshape where you wanted to go? Yeah, um, the um, it certainly did give validation um, to just the overall concept of what violence against women overall is is about uh, and it's you know about power and control and so the whole me too movement specifically um was about mostly about sexual harassment um sexual assault um but the bravery 
of folks who um, are feeling more comfortable now, um, slowly but surely, um, telling publicly, telling stories about their experiences and the reaction of, and I think that's that's hopeful to me. The reaction of our, our of many people in our community that are saying, wow, oh, we had no idea it was happening, and how was this um, so secret? And, and and then, you know, those of us who've been working in this field were saying, you know, it's secret because of the power control. So it certainly did give validation. But it is quite limited to an easier, and maybe I'm, biased and easier no it's it's hard and not, and I don't want to put any <laughs> um I don't want to make it a competition but um discussing what's going on in your home on a regular day-to-day basis with the person you love um it's, we still haven't gotten that far um, it's hard. to be able to to be able to uncover the the complexities and and how vicious and prevalent um, domestic violence is, you know, we are certainly benefiting from having these conversations about power and control in workplaces and in 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 relationships. So but, it's it, it's still so tough, and we've still got a long way to go. <laughs> but wouldn't you say with that that this whole notion that y'all made a pretty interesting shift? We have done all this work to empower women to tell stories because we need to empower women. Oh, by the way, we probably need to start thinking about the men. That and and the call to men and that is talk about that shift and why we had to start engaging men's stories. That is what's so hopeful to me is that when I went into this work eighteen years ago, the questions and that we were fielding were what are the signs and symptoms of an uh, somebody who's a victim of abuse? How do you pick her out? Why didn't she leave? If she leaves, why didn't she stay gone? What did she do in order, to, you know, what was her role in this? And all of these questions, and these questions were asked to us as an organization, media, would come to us and and it was after somebody after a victim had been killed. So you're looking at the the onus of all the responsibility is on the victim in um, situations where um, a victim does call for help. Um, a lot of the questions that were being asked were, you know, what did you do? Um, um, and then a lot of the responsibility. Asking the women, like, she, what, they did did, what did you do to make this happen? Well, what it, was, you know, it, it wasn't that obvious, but right. it was very subtle. But it was that. The, the, it, it was, was the, put on the woman. It was absolutely. The, in, in any other situation, if you think about any other, uh, barring addiction, maybe. Right. In any other situation, we're not ever going to put the onus of a problem on the victim right. of the situation. And it was very Except apparent. For domestic violence. But right, but it was very apparent that it's like you did something, you wore a short skirt, you were exactly. mean, you spoke up, you didn't do the dishes, you didn't do you, the. You, it was you, 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 you woman, were woman. Nagging, nagging, nagging. So, and in, in all of our systems. So right. there's where we were. 
So we have moved forward and have more co- complex conversations. And let's um, talk about that. What is how yeah, did you you, yeah. you started something called the Man Up State? Yeah, talk about that and what was that shift to make that happen nationwide? There were some folks who were saying, "Gosh, we're the people who are talking about domestic violence are only women." And women are leading these organizations. Survivors are talking about their stories. And what's the percentage of um, domestic violence um, that where where women are the victims, 85, 87, something like percent, um, where victims are women. If the problem is that that women are victims and the reality is that most guys are good guys, why aren't we getting them to the table to help them help us work together in addressing the issue of domestic violence? And of course, at that point, it was like, Eureka! And that was probably, what, 10 years ago, nine years, eight years ago? And so, um, yeah, so Man Up State was our uh, uh, initiative to really get men to the table to say, all right, what, what is the responsibility of men to hold each other accountable for providing respect in relationships? And Tony Porter in A Call to Men really yeah. helped us think about yeah. that, didn't they? He did. I kind of want to go back to some of his first, and he talks about the man box. Yeah. And I remember the man box conversation, and he talks about the percentages. And then he looks in the room and he says, where are all the good men? Why are you not standing up and calling down the guy that's doing the cat call? Yeah. And then from that, we started telling stories and finding the good yeah. men in the community and letting them yeah. tell their story. Yeah. How, when you we started capturing those stories of good men, Yeah. what did that do to you? What, what did that make you think and start looking at? When you started hearing those stories coming from men? You know, once again, once again, I had underestimated the capacity for somebody else to be engaged and and care about and um, want to tell a story from their point of view together and that we aren't alone in this. You know, doing domestic violence work, a lot of times those of us have been – human service work, let's just be honest. A lot of us feel like we're alone in this and that we have to carry this torch. And 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 so it, it, until we really give other people an opportunity to come alongside us, you know, including survivors who want to, some of them want to be part of changing things and, and men who were, they wanted to know what to do to help. I mean, and, and so in, in helping us to figure out, you know, what does that look like? Um, and um, so, yeah, I underestimated. And, and how, do, how, do, how do we come to our communities in a way that we can identify where their roles are to, to help us not just respond? And I think that's the thing. We, you know, we typically looked at, you know, how do you respond to issues of um, domestic violence? Um, but n- more than that, deeper than that, you know, how are we creating this, you know, the, the uh, calling each other out, um, men calling each other out when, when there's cat calling, 
That's how, a, how do, that's how do we know that that's, that's preventing? New. Yeah, exactly. How do we know that that's preventing something from happening in the future? How do we know that that? So that is. Um, but it had to happen because then we saw what's his name from the NFL in the video, where inside the elevator, and it put it on a national Ray stage. Ray yeah. Rice. Yeah. And that was the first time the nation had seen. Yeah. Someone swing and hit someone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I remember being in this office the, mm-hmm. right after that happened, mm-hmm. and I was taken back by it. Wow. Because I'd never seen that before. Yeah. I'd yeah. never seen in yeah. real person someone slugging and hitting another woman like that. Mm-hmm. In that way, that manner, and, know, and the weird dynamic that came out of that. What 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 hit me the most was, you know, I can imagine that. I haven't, I don't, actually, I don't think I've ever seen it myself. But that wasn't, I, what, what I think told the bigger story to me in that video was him dragging her out. Mm. That was that. Not that the, was hit, that, the hitting was, but the hitting was, drag- the hitting was horrible. I mean, it was right. horrible. I mean, we know that, but- the complete ownership of her unconscious body and him just pulling her out like she was not even human was the story that it told me. And the commitment that men have to be a part of the conversation. Yeah. Like, did it almost say, it's we've got to dive even more to this? Yeah. Yeah. And what do you think was the feedback from the men that said, I want to start being a part of this? Like, I know it's hard to galvanize men because men yeah. want action. They yeah. they want steps to do things, yeah. and it's yeah. hard for yeah. us to figure it out. Yeah. But but that movement was good, but it's still it's a, it's a challenging movement. It's tough. It's tough. It's tough um, to, to get some traction. It's been tough for us to get traction. While we, we know that it is – it's the most important thing, um, and the conversations we're having are more complex and more, uh, you know, um, getting to, to holding holding the abuser accountable at this point um, and having guys be a part of that. Um, it, I think what we're, we're seeing just in our history is that we had a, a lot of movement, a lot of momentum there for a while, and it got really tough and so we just kind of it was so it, it it stalled for it's it's been stalled for a minute um and and we and, it, and that's how things are too i mean there's there domestic violence is really not the 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 sexy topic that it was about three or four years ago in south carolina um so there are other things that have been taken its place but it continues to go and, on just in as much and the numbers are still there the numbers are still there i mean what so, are, what's the, what's south carolina in relation to the nation still we're number five in the nation now. what we were a few years ago we were number one number two number three but still we're number five in the nation of women killed by men and in any given year our movement could be back to number one i still feel a enormous responsibility and honor of of the fact that there are people who trust our organization and and the people in this organization to hold with them the most horrible things that have ever happened in their lives um from and and the and, and the confusion of it happening with the person that they love the most but 
I think that the the word that I we were using before, maybe we weren't even using that word, but the 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 word that I would use now instead of thinking about it as a protective thing, now that I know more, um, is more of a responsibility. Um, and I still feel a enormous responsibility, but it's not protection anymore because especially, you know, the the very first interviews that you did. I recognize that if somebody wants and feels comfortable telling their story, um, then that's up to them. that's that's their story, and and it's really not. It's very patronizing of me to feel like I am protecting them from something that I'm fearing that is going to hurt them or make them feel uncomfortable as opposed to giving them a choice and allowing them to, to, to choose for themselves, but also holding the responsibility as knowing that I am going to be, in the end, responsible for any kind of content or any kind of you know, uh, negative repercussions that might occur as, as we tell this, or, and to be very respectful just maintain the safety and 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 the, this the emotional safety as well as their actual physical safety. Um, keep that in the front in the forefront of our minds. Becky Callahan, thank you. Thanks, Bobby. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and exploration. Most importantly the many intersections inside the world of storytelling. Intersection is powered by Touchpoint Media Network, podcast dedicated to discussions on all things healthcare. Go to touchpoint.health for many other podcasts exploring digital marketing and online patient engagement strategies, CIO and technology strategies, the challenges of the online physician, the power of the e-patient, and most importantly, the power of storytelling. To learn more, go to touchpoint.health. That is touchpoint.health. Have a good day.